this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Rayland Robica about his book, Hip-Hop's Amnesia, From Blues and the Black Women's Club Movement to Rap and the Hip-Hop Movement, published in 2012 by Lexington Books. Hip-Hop's Amnesia is the second installment of a trilogy of hip-hop movement books written by Robica. The first, Hip-Hop's Inheritance, was published in 2011. The third, The Hip-Hop Movement, is due in 2013. In this one, Rabaka presents alternative interpretations, what he calls remixes, of some important moments in African-American cultural, aesthetic, and political history with a focus on the role played by the musical movements of the times, relating these stories to the situation in which the contemporary hip-hop movement and the role of rap music within hip-hop finds itself. Specifically, he looks at the relationship between classic blues queens and the black women's club movement, relating this to modern neo-soul sisters and the hip-hop women's movement. The antagonism between classic jazz and bebop and the role of jazz rap in the hip-hop movement, and the connection between the New Negro movement and the Harlem Renaissance, relating this to homo-hop within the hip-hop movement. Rabaka wraps up his story with a passionate plea to members of the hip-hop movement to recognize their connections to the past, to incorporate lessons learned from their forebears' experiences, to keep up the good fight, a fight as old as the country itself. Throughout, he encourages all of us to recognize that real history includes the stories not just of the winners, the bourgeois, but also the stories of the also-rans, the forgotten, the people. Rayland Rabaka lives in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Rayland, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Greetings, greetings. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for, for once again uh, gracing us with your presence. <laughs> thanks uh, so much. Um, why don't we start off just... For those who haven't listened to our first interview um, about uh, hip-hop's inheritance, tell us a, a little bit about your biography, please. Oh, well, um, started out as a jazz, as a jazz musician and um, have had a strong interest in uh, jazz and gospel music, uh, rock, soul, funk, disco, reggae, you name it. I, I live for music. Music is life, as they say. And... Um, I have uh, a lot of connections in the South, uh, particularly in Texas, uh, and some other connections in the Caribbean as well. So, um, yeah, just kind of soaking up a lot of the sounds that are coming from both the South and the Southwest and also the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. How how do you end up uh, in Colorado? <laughs> you know, if you excuse me, it seems like kind of an unusual place for a person doing your kind of studies to yeah. be. End up in Colorado. I caught that. Okay. Um, well, you know, it, it, it is uh, a, a suburb of, of Denver, Boulder, Colorado. Uh-huh. And um, this is a space, you know, I, I've, I've often said sort of following uh, P-Funk that it, it's, it's almost easier to teach African-American studies or black studies in a chocolate city. It's sometimes it's more difficult mm. to do that in a vanilla suburb, as they say, mm-hmm. on the album. And, and you know, the, the whole the whole thing is, is this is a space that gives me the kind of resources to do um, the, the kind of work that I really think is really important. And um, so it was one of those spaces where, you know, everything sort of worked out right. And believe it or not, I actually have access to a lot of stuff going on, um, especially West Coast and, Southwestern um, hip hop culture, which I think that there's a tendency to focus purely on the either the Northeast or either the Midwest. So in terms of the South, the Southwest, and the West, a lot of people aren't looking at the the, the kinds of hip hop culture that are emerging from those regions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I just I thought that 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 would be really important, and like I said, this is where I you know ended up with a pretty good gig. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so, so this uh, book, Hip Hop's Amnesia, is is the second uh, of a trilogy. Yes. Uh, um, please uh, catch us up with the first book. So, to bring us up today, tell us about Hip Hop's Inheritance a little bit, and and how it leads us into this book. Okay, Hip Hop's Inheritance essentially looks at art movements, our aesthetic movements, what I call in the book cultural aesthetic movements, uh, and it looks at their relationship. 
um, what they contributed to what I'm now calling the hip-hop movement. And um, so basically, hip-hop's inheritance takes on the Harlem Renaissance. Then it goes from basically 1920s, 1930s, Harlem Renaissance, jazz age, um, culture and music to the black arts movement in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, you know, the, the black arts movement being the artistic wing of the black power movement. And then it goes from there and it goes to the artistic wing of the women's liberation movement, which was called the uh, feminist art movement. And so it looks at these three pivotal uh, cultural aesthetic or artistic movements and it looks at what they contributed to the hip-hop movement and the ways in which sometimes even unconsciously or unwittingly hip-hoppers actually show the influence, if you will, of that inheritance from those previous artistic movements. And what I found to be really interesting is that there's a tendency to sort of privilege one aspect, um, you know, one contribution or one movement over, you know, other contributions that might have been given to hip-hop from another movement. And so I thought it was really important to sort of level the playing field and talk just as much about, say, for instance, the um, feminist or womanist contributions to hip-hop culture as it was to talk about the more um, nationalist or masculinist contributions to the uh, hip-hop movement. Mm -hmm. And, and um, uh, who's, who's your intended audience for these books? Well, <laughs> Good, good, good question. Primarily, um, you know, the, the whole notion of African American studies, if we go back to the origins of it, the intellectual origins, uh, one of the famous, uh, really, architects of the field, his name is uh, Dr. Nathan Hare, and he says that uh, black studies should always connect the campus to the community and the, and, and the community to the campus, meaning that essentially knowledge should flow from the campus to the community, and knowledge should flow from the community to the campus, and that it, it's basically a two-way street. And so for me, yes, it is an academic book, but, you know, Matt, you would be surprised at how many um, um, emails I get from, from, you know, church women and prisoners and custodians and school teachers. And so, you know, I, I just think that, that a work like this that's grappling with black popular culture and black popular music always, you know, is going to extend well beyond a college campus because this is what's going on right now. I mean, you know, this is this is something that uh, obviously it 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 is it, it has had a huge impact not simply on our national culture but on our international culture as well. And not just on on African American culture either, right? Oh, I mean, very you, know, much you so. bring it up in at least in hip hop's amnesia, you know, uh if you will, white culture ha has embraced at least the the artistic part very, very of, of hip-hop, so. right? Very much so. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, I think that we, we've always had uh, progressive European-American or white allies, and I think that this is something that you can see I get at early on in uh, hip-hop's amnesia, talking about um, essentially uh, interracial alliances that, that basically cut across not simply race, but also gender, class, sexuality, nationality, and I think that I think that we have to stop, you know, we, the hip-hop generation, we've got to stop trying to reinvent the wheel. And so one of the ways that we do that is by looking to the past for models for what it is that we would like to do now. I'm not saying that they have all the solutions to our problems in the past. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that, again, there is no need to reinvent the wheel and that obviously we can draw from a lot of what is going on previously. And I'm not simply talking about music. I think that the hip-hoppers have that down to a T. They will remix old-school music all day long, but when it comes to old-school politics or old-school uh, old social organizations, there is, as I call it in the book, there is this intellectual amnesia, this historical amnesia, this cultural amnesia going on. Do you think that's, um, is that unique to, to the hip-hop movement or African-Americans, or do you think as a culture as a whole, do we do we have uh, amnesia of our past? Definitely. I, I think that the whole of, of the culture, I think that there's a real problematic with the uh, U.S. education system, especially K-12, through because there's a tendency for essentially the curriculum is monocultural, meaning one, it focuses on one culture instead of being multicultural. 
right, which means we're going to focus on many cultures. And the last time I checked, what, what makes America so beautiful is the fact that it's actually a multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, multireligious, multinational society. And I just think that, I mean, again, hip-hop really is the culmination of hundreds of years of, of struggle and activism and, and artistic innovation. All of these things seem to come together in, in what I'm calling the hip-hop movement. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and when you're talking about the hip-hop movement, of course, as you've already mentioned, you're talking about something uh, much larger than just, say, rap music or neo-soul music. I mean, there's the academic arm of it, which you might be a part of, and yeah. the artistic arm and the political arm. Very much so. Very much so. And then, then there, there's another arm that's deeply involved in terms of social organization. And so um, even if you go back to early articulations of, you know, what hip-hop is, Africa Bambada talked about, or he articulated, DJing, MCing, graffiti writing, and, and breakdancing. In, in the mid-1980s, mid he added a fifth uh, fundamental element of hip-hop culture, and that fifth element is knowledge. And this is where most people actually have amnesia surrounding that. So what I'm actually involved in, this area called uh, hip-hop studies, is actually part and parcel to the very hip-hop project, if you will. I mean, it is actually internal to it. It's not something that's, you know, a bunch of sort of, you know, bourgeois academics getting together. They foresaw the need for us to chronicle and critique hip-hop culture as it's actually emerging, as it's actually going on. And this is something that actually distinguishes uh, the hip-hop movement from previous movements. I'm not, to say, I'm not saying that there wasn't, you know, plenty of uh, internal criticism going on during the Harlem Renaissance or the black arts movement or the feminist art movement, but I'm saying the ability right now, uh, I'm looking on my bookshelf. I have over 100 documentaries on various aspects of hip-hop culture. I have literally probably double or triple that number of books on hip-hop culture. This is a phenomenon that really is, there's a deep intellectual dimension and a deep historical dimension to uh, hip-hop that most people are um, uh, sort of erasing or ignoring. And, you know, again, I have my thoughts as to why that's happening, but in the book, as you can see, I'm actually trying to get at a larger kind of amnesia, not simply the hip-hoppers' amnesia, but people's, in, in fact, some of our elders' amnesia surrounding hip-hop, how it emerged, you know, how it developed, how it draws from some of the, if you will, more scandalous elements of the Hall of Renaissance and some of the more scandalous elements, if you will, of the black arts movement or, you know, God forbid I invoke the lost generation or the beat generation, right, or the hippie movement. I mean, it's not like hip-hop just fell out of the sky. <laughs> uh, another uh, interesting point you make then is um, – uh, our um, idealization of these past cultures, right? Of yes. how now we look back at, you know, the blues is now a a, 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 a classic American institution, and and jazz, you know, is now jazz studies are taught in colleges. And um, speak to that a little, please. Well, you know, in, in the in the first in the first uh, the the first and second remix of hip hop amnesia, and and by the way. Uh, I, I shifted. You can see I'm trying to I'm trying to develop a style that really captures some of the dynamism of hip hop culture, and I'm trying to translate you know some of what happens on the stage, and I'm trying to translate that to the page. So instead of chapters, I actually have remixes. So there are five remixes as opposed to chapters because I think that that speaks more to um, hip hop culture and and if you will a hip hop aesthetic. And in that sense. This book, I conceived of it as a mixtape, and and those are basically five mega mixes, you know, extended mixes, if you will. Where I'm I'm just like a DJ cutting up lots of different mm -hmm. things and remixing and putting it all together. But I want to speak directly to your uh, question here. You know, in the, the first couple of remixes I actually talk about the emergence of uh, the blues culture, and that came out of juke joints, and that came out of um, um, underground African-American sort of uh, culture, vernacular culture, and street culture, if you will, and, and because of that, there was even a stigma attached to it, even amongst the black middle class and the black upper class, and so what I do is talk about the, the kinds of class stratification that goes on in the African-American community 
And there's a tendency when we think about, uh, in terms of the, the, the long history of the civil rights movement, there's a tendency to sort of start with um, the New Negro movement. And what I've done on a very sort of black feminist tip is to go back to the black women's club movement and point out that it actually predates the New Negro movement that was primarily, you know, or at least uh, the, 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 the way it's interpreted now is primarily um, led by men, people like Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Elaine Locke, and, and so on and so forth. But by going back to the black women's club movement that actually had this genesis in the 1880s, and this was a, you know, this was an absolutely incredible movement, I actually show that this, the civil rights movement not only emerges out of the African American church or the black church, but there is a, there's a tendency for the church to be very sort of hyper, are preoccupied with middle-class views and values. And their preoccupation with middle-class view, views and values has made the church consistently have a very sort of contentious relationship with black popular culture and black popular music. Hence, the club women really sort of shunned the classic blues queens. And when I say classic blues queens, I'm talking about people like Ma Rainey. I'm talking about Bessie Smith, you know, um, Ida Cox. I mean, there, there's so many of them who really their music captured the the subjugated knowledges, as Foucault might say, of the uh, working class, working poor, and underclass African American women during that time. So, who 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 uh, who are the members of the Black Women's Club movement? I mean, I haven't. I haven't necessarily. I haven't heard much about a you know a a a black bourgeois in the late 19th century. So who who were these people? Well, they were primarily um, church women. They were college educated. This was this was part of the. This was almost like the black feminist wing of Du Bois's uh, talented tent. Mm-hmm. And what they sought to do was um, essentially create an uplift organization, and it was national. At first, you had like an East Coast faction, a Midwest faction, a Southern faction, and a, and a, and a West Coast faction. And then in 19, excuse me, in 18, 1896, they um, got together, and they formed the National Association um, of Colored Women. And this National Association of Colored Women, um, founded in 1896, they literally sought to help um, unwed mothers, um, children that had been abandoned, an orphan. They they sought to tend to the infirmed. They had a strong emphasis on education. They had a strong emphasis on civil rights. They had a strong emphasis on women's rights. But part of the problematic sometimes with their emphasis on women's rights was that many of them embraced what we would call American Victorianism. You know, this whole notion of the politics of respectability, which was a very sort of bourgeois and middle class mainstream uh, kind of uh, value system and in and, and doing that, they looked down on, in many senses, working class and underclass African-American women, at least those that sort of were not trying to um, embrace some kind of um, American Victorian aesthetic. And, um, and uh, contrast and tell us about these classic blues um women or just classic blues generally and how it contrasted with the values that the black women's movement was expressing. Okay, well, this is going to be real interesting because essentially right now, Matt, if I say the blues and if I ask people to name off iconic blues artists, mm-hmm. most people would talk about Muddy Waters, Highland Wolf, T-Bone Walker, Robert Johnson, Elmore James. I could do this all day long, but I, I don't, we don't have time for all that. But what I'm saying, Matt, is that there's a, the blues has been masculinized. And what I ultimately argue is that something very simpler, uh, similar has happened with rap music. So the, 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 the people that really popularized the blues initially on record were was Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And in fact, if you go back and look at early blues, there's this deep sort of black feminist dimension to blues culture. Well, I'm not saying that you didn't have, you know, prominent male blues artists like Robert Johnson and Charlie Payton and so on and so forth. You obviously did. But in terms of like there was this kind of urbanity that went along with somebody like Amal Rainey or Bessie Smith, and they were able to command these incredible audiences, and they really helped to popularize what it is that we now know of as the blues. 
And so this is a fascinating thing because, in, in, in essence, they, they were the mouthpieces for working-class African-American women. And it, it, it's a fascinating thing because, to a certain extent, the, the, the Black Women's Club movement, being a primarily middle class and a church women's movement, they, they, they really sought to sort of uh, pull the um, working class up to, to their middle class standards and level in any way in which these working class women deviated from middle class uh, values then they were ostracized they were not uh, they were not seen as um you know um a credit to the race as you know as the as the saying goes they were not considered race women you know they were kind of like casualties of this of this uh, sort of uh, post reconstruction period tell us about the song uh mammy smith's crazy blues well i mean that's a, it's a, this is one of the first great uh popular uh blues songs and this is this is really where, um, if you will, mainstream America. This is where they really sort of began to get a sense of some of the rhythms uh, and the rationale uh, of Black life and culture. And it is here that really you have the emergence of essentially a, a national music, a music that sort of gives America a special character, at least post minstrel music, right, and vaudeville. Because, again, we can never forget that this is something I pointed out in hip-hop's uh, inheritance, that essentially the first uh, national popular culture and the first national popular music grew out of the minstrel shows, which, as we know, the whole point of the minstrel shows was to mock and make fun of and ridicule black folk. And so it becomes really kind of interesting that the blues, instead of this sort of upbeat, happy, kind of step-and-fetch-it songs, no, the, the blues actually grapple with black life and struggle on a very sort of deep level. I know most people only hear um, uh, songs about relationships, but if you really place that within a sociology of music context, you can see the ways in which the larger society, the political economy of a capitalist society actually impacts African-American relationships, family, conceptions of God, love, sex, marriage, all of these things are impacted by a larger superstructure. And this actually is articulated in a lot of the, the music, especially uh, uh, somebody like Bessie Smith's music. Mm -hmm. um, w w was there ever... Uh, uh, so, so you're saying that, for instance, the members of the, the black women's movement, there was a bit of uh, condescension on their part towards towards blues and and, and African Americans yes. I guess there's a, there's a bit of classism here yeah um, was there ever criticism going the other way I were, were members of the black women's movement for instance ever accused of you let me use the term being Uncle Tom selling out being too white uh, you know I mean here's the here's the whole interesting thing about this kind of project um, is that Patricia Hill Collins has pointed out that most people don't realize but Poor folks actually don't have the kind of forms to express their grievances or their social critique as middle class and upper class people do. So if you have an issue of literacy, instead of writing it down, what if they actually sung it? They actually put it in songs, which is something that actually then relates the blues back to the griots in West Africa, right? So if you, if you think about it, if you have this sort of oral culture where you have a lot of people who are illiterate because, again, they've experienced 350 years of enslavement where it was legal in America, uh, it was illegal for African Americans to be educated. So if that's the case, then something very fascinating is going on here um, to where um, the, they are actually then singing a lot of their grievances. And this is where, this is where I make the connection with Lawrence, Lawrence, Lawrence Levine's work and black culture and black consciousness, where he actually points out that even during the enslavement, a lot of what we consider the spirituals or work songs are actually cultural codes. They're actually, they have double, they, they, have, they have double meanings. They have multiple meanings. And it depends on which, how, you know, how you're going to look at it to interpret it. You can interpret it from a mainstream American historical point of view, or you can do it from an African American historical point of view. And once we look at it from an African American perspective, a whole new archive is opened up, and that is primarily what hip hop's amnesia is about. Is sort of juxtaposing the 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 sort of the place. 
that, that black women had in basically popularizing the blues. And I juxtapose that with the ways in which um, black women helped to popularize what we now know as rap music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you do make the connection, right, between, uh, I think I have a phrase, um, how the blues connected to and, and also broke from, broke away from the songs of slavery, right? Very, very much so. Very, very much so. Because, I mean, you have to understand that most, when we talk about the spirituals or field hollers and work songs, we're, we're primarily talking about communal music. We're talking about collective expressions. The blues um, is arguably the first time in African-American history where African-American singer-songwriters could actually express themselves as opposed to larger or, you know, a, a larger sort of communal ethos. Right? And this is going to be really important because it, it's actually the, the blues singer-songwriter, Matt, sets the paradigm for countless genres to follow, whether we talk about jazz divas and jazz vocalists, whether we talk about uh, jump blues, whether we talk about rhythm and blues, certainly whether we talk about rock and roll, right, soul, mm-hmm. funk, disco, all the way through to rap music and uh, neo-soul. It's fascinating because if we look at those early blues singer-songwriters who are not really sort of given the proper kind of respect, we actually can see that if you look in terms of a do a conceptual analysis of the blues and look at basic concepts and themes, you will find profanity in some blues songs. You will find songs about sex and sexuality in some blues songs. You will find songs about relationships. You will find songs about the ghetto about the slums, about poverty, about crime, about domestic violence. All of the themes that are in rap music today are prefigured in classic blues culture. How how is it? What what is the the historical, social, cultural process? I'm going back to an earlier question that, that these become romanticized, the blues, for instance. Well, you know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I think that in America, in the United States of America, there is almost an anti-youth ethos, and particularly an anti-black ghetto youth, because we need to be very specific here. So we're talking about black ghetto youth. Nobody expects any talent or any gifts or any social contributions to come out of the ghetto. And in that sense, these youths are rendered invisible. They are ignored. They are, they are erased. And this is part of the real problematic is, is what if I can show you um, genre after genre after genre of African-American music that actually could be interpreted as the cultural expressions, the articulations of disenfranchised black ghetto youth? And, Matt, even on top of that, what if I could show you that there is a tendency for these, um, these cultural expressions of black ghetto youth to often be taken up? by suburban white youth, going all the way back to the blues, to jazz, to bebop, to uh, rhythm and blues, which, you know, ultimately when, when it goes uh, into the suburbs, they call it rock and roll. I mean, it's a very, you know, uh, Alan Freed and them called it rock. I mean, this is a very interesting thing that goes on because what I'm showing you then is that really there has been more um, interconnections, right, between black ghetto youth and white suburban youth than most people actually are willing to admit. And so let, let me say it slow. So everybody will get it. Rap music, then, is not the first black popular music to be embraced and celebrated um, and, and appreciated by white suburban youth. This goes all the way back to blues culture. This goes all the way back to blues. And certainly, um, we, can, we can definitely look at it when, when, I, when we start talking about uh, Remix 3 and hip-hop's amnesia. We can certainly see this whenever we come to jazz. I mean, I mean... Matt, have you ever thought that here is essentially a black popular music that becomes so popular that F. Scott Fitzgerald helps to coin this this term called the jazz age? I mean, the 20s and the 30s are called the jazz age. This is this is fascinating. So, you know, long before Nelson George comes out with Hip Hop America, essentially we're saying black popular culture and black popular music put the premium on what it means to be cool, hip and sexy in America, and that goes all the way back to the Harlem Renaissance period. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you use this term, it's much later in the book, in your last remix, and I think you're talking about these, these uh, ghetto youth, is, they're ex- aesthetically accepted, but politically rejected. Yes. I mean, isn't that, isn't that a deep thing? Because to a certain extent, um, Matt, we could actually say that African Americans 
African Americans have been essentially aesthetically or artistically accepted, or their artistic contributions, of well, you know, in many senses, ultimately have been accepted, especially when they can be commodified by you know corporate America. But their other contributions, whether they be um, uh, social, political, educational, whatever kind of contributions, those are either they are rejected or they are co-opted and understood to be someone else's. Don't, uh, this is a little outside your book, but is this the same for athletics, do you think? Oh, most, most, I would definitely agree with you. I think that um, African Americans have helped to put the premium on what it means to be an American gladiator or an American athlete in most fields. Now, this is going to be tricky because the very kind of segregation that was going on in the larger society seeped into the realm of athletics, just like you and I both know that they called most of all African American music before 1945 was called race records. They lumped it all together. They didn't make any distinction between blues and jazz and ragtime and the spirituals and gospel, all these different kinds of forms. That's why you can saw I broke the trilogy up. And in this particular book, I'm looking at essentially 1900 to 1955. Or actually, I'm going to, well, I should say 1895 to 1955. And I'm looking at the first half of the 20th century, and I'm looking at all of the um, black popular culture, black popular musics and black popular movements that I feel like really directly contributed to what we're calling rap music and the hip-hop movement. And in that sense, a whole different kind of frame of reference opens up, a whole different kind of a line of logic is opened up because there's a tendency to act like rap is just um, just so, so much more egregious, so much more, uh, so vulgar compared to um, uh, past uh, musics, and that's just not the case. I mean, there are songs... Um, back in the classic with the classic blues queens, where they're singing openly about lesbianism, there are songs where people are, are talking about getting so drunk that they fall down and throw up, and all this. All this is in the blues, though. So, so when I listen to some of this gangster rap, or when I listen to some of this uh, homo hop, which is the homosexual hip hop, or the queer rap, I mean, I'm hearing very similar themes. Right now, only, the only thing that's changed are some of the beats and the technology through which we are making this music, but the messages in the music basically remain the same. Why, you may ask me, what, Matt, and I'll tell you why. Because essentially, African Americans' social conditions, their political standing in this society has changed very, very little since Reconstruction. Now, uh let me argue with that about isn't there a larger uh, African-American middle class now than there was 100 years ago? Yes, but um, Matt, you could say the exact same thing about the white middle class. You could say the same thing about the uh, so-called brown or Chicano, Latino middle class. You could say the same thing about the Asian middle class. But the reality of the matter is, Matt, is that you're talking really about 3 to 5% of African-America. The majority, the majority of African Americans, upwards of 85%, are still working class, working poor, and underclass. And so if you look at the, if you look, I mean, if you just do the percentages of how much, I mean, how large the white middle class is, right, or other middle classes are growing. Even right now, if you talk about the unemployment rate, why is it that for black ghetto youth, and particularly for black youth in general, the unemployment rate is three times that? For white youth in the same age range. Mm -hmm. So, again, I just think that the people think that simply because Obama was elected president, everything is supposed to be great for African Americans. That's just not the case. There still needs to be – we need to continue the civil rights movement just like we need to continue the women's rights movement. Right? I mean, there's still we we still talking about economic justice, and we're talking about – I mean, we're talking about really a, a people that was enslaved for 350 years. And they have not received any form of assistance from the government. This is, this is, there's been no reparations. There's been nothing. And the music actually speaks to that. Now, again, when I say reparations, I'm not talking about money. But again, okay, for 350 years of, of the government, right, saying that it's illegal for African Americans to be enslaved, shouldn't there be some kind of special educational programs aimed at African Americans then? Because, again, I mean, this year, Matt, this is uh, 2013, we are only 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. African Americans have only been uh, in so-called freedom 150 years. And I think America could have done a much better job of, of you know, helping us sort of move forward. Now, obviously, I believe in self-reliance, and we've got to help ourselves. 
But again, we're paying our taxes just like everybody else. We've made serious contributions to American society just like everybody else, but yet sometimes we don't reap the benefits like everybody else. Because again, you and I both know, I mean, American apartheid just failed not too long ago. What are we talking about? Fifty years ago, tops. Mm-hmm. You have uh, so, so uh, looking at this uh, the, the divide. You had each of your remixes. You 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 show how um, there's some condescension going on. There's there's um, sometimes even within the African American community towards. You know the the black women's movement towards blues, and then you you bring it up to more modern times. Right. So um, you have some some criticisms for uh, African American feminist academics in your in your in your book. How uh, how how what kind of uh, feedback have you had from from black feminist academics to your book? Well, you know, again, it's not it's not a blanket con- condemnation. Just like obviously, I have a love affair with the Black Women's Club movement. So not all, not everybody in the Black Women's Club movement was uh, bourgeois or conservative. There were some militants. In fact, let me let me name them: Ida B. Wells, <laughs> Mary Church Terrell, Dr. Anna Julia Cooper. Right? I mean, there were a lot of them. Francis Ellen Watkins Hopper. There were so many of them who were really, really um, sort of quite militant, quite radical on many, many different issues. And so, again, the, the same thing applies uh, to my critique of some contemporary black feminists seem to have a very sort of um, – they, they, they seem to uh, parallel their views of uh, hip-hop women, seem to parallel the views of the black women's uh, club m- movement vis-a-vis classic blues queens. And so what I'm saying is there's this tendency for sort of a college-educated um, elite um, uh, women to sort of look down on women who are involved in uh, black popular music and black popular culture. And what I'm saying is that both of these spaces actually offer us, once we place them both together, they offer us a fuller picture of African-American women. And I'm saying, though, it's only when we can actually not simply get the views and the values and the knowledge coming from upper class and middle class folk, but also the views and the values and the knowledge coming from working class, working poor, and underclass folk. Only then can we actually achieve our humanity, rescue and reclaim, as James Baldwin said, our humanity. So, so you want um, uh, one of your themes is we need to take uh, take seriously these um these other musics, not the popular music, popular culture. We need to yeah. take pop, popular culture uh, seriously in, a, in the political realm, yes. for instance. Very, very much so. And in fact, part of the argument is, especially by the time you get to the classic jazz to jazz rap chapter, um, mm-hmm. part, of, part, of the, part of the emphasis here, though, is that popular music and popular culture are sites and sources of knowledge. Again, we're talking about many people, if, if you start talking about hip-hop, you're talking about many people who don't even have high school diplomas, but yet they are running companies, record labels, and, and you know, I mean, they, they, they're, they're doing lots of different things with, with what little, you know, education or formal, if you will, education that they had access to. And here, Matt, we can go directly to Antonio Gramsci and talk about organic intellectuals. Because, again, Gramsci makes a distinction between those people with formal um, education and then those people with, quote-unquote, informal or what, what, what I would call folk philosophy. And I actually see a lot of the rappers as folk philosophers then. And I think this especially came through when, when we start talking about the uh, j- jazz rap genre, you know, with, with groups like uh, Gangstar, Diggable Planets, uh, The Roots. I mean, you got so many of them that were just really doing this absolutely phenomenal, just really, really incredible work. And, you know, obviously that was ultimately eclipsed by gangster rap. And so part of the argument in that book, uh, Hip Hop's Amnesia, is that there are more than 50 forms of rap music, 50 genres, Matt, of rap music. And most people, they only know about commercial rap and gangster rap. They only know basically about radio rap, pop rap, and gangster rap. That's it. So the other 47-plus genres of rap music are essentially um, erased, or again, hence hip-hop's amnesia. You see, uh, Matt, that, that, you know, the whole thing is, is that if I came up to somebody that's a serious jazz connoisseur and told them uh, and said, you know, how much I didn't like jazz because I don't like no Kenny G., Right, and again, I'm not saying anything against 
you know, Ken, Kenny G, by the way. <laughs> but I'm just sorry, I know a lot of people like Kenny G, so that's, that's, that's all well and great. But what if I said, you know, I don't like jazz because, you know, I heard some jazz, which was quote-unquote Kenny G, and I don't like jazz then. And somebody said, wait, you can't say smooth jazz is all of jazz. You need to go back and get some Billy Holiday, some John Coltrane, some Louis Armstrong, some Miles Davis, some Theolonis Monk, Charles Mingus. I could do this all day, Abby Lincoln, right? You need to go back and get some of this, you know, some, some of these other forms of jazz. And then we can start talking about bebop and postbop and hardbop and fusion. I mean, there's so many different styles of jazz. That's like somebody taking one or two forms of jazz, smooth jazz, new age, fusion, and saying that, you know, that's what jazz is, when really, I mean, jazz, there's so many different genres of jazz, it's unreal. That's unfair to the hip-hoppers. That's unfair to us, because our parents get mad. You know what, Matt, listen, brother, if I ran up to you right now and said, you know, Matt, um, I don't really like rock because I heard the Bee Gees, and, you know, I don't really, I'm not into that. You would say, listen, Matt, you ain't never heard no Led Zeppelin? You ain't heard the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, Pink Floyd? So, I mean, the problem is that people are taking one genre, sometimes the most popular forms for the genre, which is only the tip of the iceberg. We've got to dig a little deeper, and I would think that, you know, it's time, as as we say in the hip-hop community, it's time to do the knowledge. It's time for us to really get critical about this thing before it gets away from us. So so take us in, although you already started, to to your third remix and jazz. Um, uh, Be a little more specific uh, of, of this the jazz. Tell us about Remix 3, please. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, in, as you know, in, in, in Remix 2, I essentially, are, you know, argue that uh, whether whether acknowledged or not, the classic blues queens provided a soundtrack for the Black Women's Club movement. I argue in Remix 3 that jazz essentially provides a soundtrack for what was then called the New Negro Movement. Most people only know about the artistic arm of the New Negro Movement, which was the Harlem Renaissance. But the largest civil rights movement that took place between about um, 1895 and 1945, that was called actually the New Negro Movement, and it coincided, you know, it, it actually blossomed into this cultural revolution that we call the Harlem Renaissance. And during that period, jazz, classic jazz, folk like Louis Armstrong and uh, Duke Ellington, uh, Cab Calloway, um, these, uh, Ethel Waters, these kind, even Josephine Baker, some of, some of her work, these kinds of people were really pioneers in terms of popularizing jazz as a form. And then from there in the 1920s, it spills over and goes into a big band. And then by the 1940s, that turns into swing. And then in the 1950s, obviously, we get this thing called bebop, right? And so I'm saying that this foundation, this jazz foundation, this emphasis, not simply on the spirituals and the blues, you know, sort of placing all these church chords off in there and, and all this kind of stuff, though, but this whole notion of improvisation, that, that spontaneity, right, being quick-witted, if you will, was part and parcel of African-American life. And I, I believe that jazz symbolizes um, African-Americans as they begin to migrate from the South uh, and, and from rural parts of the country into more urban parts of the country. And I think that if you really listen to a lot of that early jazz, you can hear what, what, what we call the Great Migration. It's that period, right, where African-Americans were really sort of moving out of the South and moving to, to the North and the Midwest and the, uh, and the, and the, and the West for more opportunities. They also were just tired of the virulent racism that was going on in the South. Now, you and I both know when they got to the North and these other spaces, they found just as much racism. They were just as segregated. And jazz speaks to this sort of, if you will, this sort of more modernized juke joint culture, taking it over from the the blues. And jazz is African-American sort of interface with uh, technology, particularly recording technology and this whole notion of industry. So your story in jazz, so it begins and then it gets into you know big band and swing. It becomes more mainstream, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure when we say in the history of our country, if something becomes more mainstream, it means that it becomes embraced by a, a white audience. Oh yeah. And then comes bebop, and you say <laughs> bebop becomes a, a new break from yeah. that older classic jazz, right? Oh, yeah. See, bebop, bebop is basically the African-American youth of the 40s and the 50s attempting to rescue and reclaim jazz. 
And this is where we get, you know, incredible personalities like Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Theolonis Monk, Max Roach. I mean, so many of them. Dexter Gordon. I mean, so many of them. Miles Davis. Wow. Kenny Dorham. I mean, we could just do Fats Navarro, Bud Powell. I mean, these are, I mean, and these bebompers, they're seeking to rescue and reclaim jazz. They're saying that it's been over-commodified. And so, Matt, part of what I'm up to, you might already have a sneaky suspicion that I'm up to something. But part of what I'm up to in this particular chapter is saying we need something similar to that to go on in terms of rap music and hip-hop culture. We need to rescue and reclaim it. Why? Because the messages in the music are being diluted. Every, every three minutes and 30 seconds, you're hearing shake your booty, drink that 40, smoke that weed. I'm so sick of it. Come on. I mean, I mean, really, it's, it's just, it's so redundant. It's just, it's a cliche. It's one cliche rhyme after another cliche rhyme. And what Bebop did, Bebop sought to disrupt that, which is why, if you really think about it, Matt, you can't really, it's very difficult to dance to Bebop. Mm. See, they, so they made it, they made it where you have to actually listen to them. And their improvisations were such that, I mean, you almost, I mean, for me, I sit with my jaw open, my mouth open when I listen to Charlie Parker below. I mean, a Dizzy Gillespie, ooh, or Charlie Mingus, come on. I mean, I mean, you, you actually, I mean, yes, there's dance music, but this was music. I mean, they actually sought to make it, quote, unquote, a high art, right? They wanted it to be something where people actually listen. And they said that, you know, if you went to a jazz club before Bebop, most people were sort of talking and drinking and dancing. Nobody actually listened to the music. And so what they wanted to do was make people listen to, to the music. Now, I think one of the ways that this is going, has gone on is obviously with the jazz rap genre, but also spoken word. See, if you, if you take the beat out from under it, then my students can't run up to me and say, oh, Dr. Ibaka, I didn't know that they was, you know, being misogynist because I, was, I really liked the beat. I was just dancing to the beat. But if you take the beat away and, and you, got, you got these people, you know, de- delivering this incredible spoken word, then you are forced to listen to the words. That's why I love the poetry. I love the spoken word because I really do think it's a counter to commercial rap. And and um, your story is one of, of, of capitalism and marketing. I mean, it, it, and this doesn't just happen with, with black forms of music. It's happened, sure. you know, with, with white forms. And there are always, there's always, the, you know, the whole term selling out, for instance. Right. Is, 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 there's always this conflict between you know, tr- true art and what's being sold right. and um, the influence of the industry marketing up, uh, upon. So, so, so the, the industry has a certain niche of, of rap music, for instance, that sells. And, and you use this great term, uh, uh, urban, uh, urban safaris. Yes, yes. I, what I a great term. I basically say that a lot of people, when they put their iPod on and they put those headphones in, they're basically going on safari. And they don't even have to leave the, you know, they they don't even have to leave their their bedroom. They don't have to leave their cushy couch in front of their plasma screen. They can literally hear these, these, these sort of exotic tales of black sexuality and black poverty and black crime and, and black misery and black social suffering. You don't even have to go. But the reality of the matter is that I think that lots of people have been desensitized to a lot of what's going on. There was a time that gangster rap was quite shocking. When N.W.A. came out or Ice-T or Ice Cube or Dr. Dre or Snoop Dogg or even early Tupac and Biggie Smalls, when that came out, that was actually quite shocking because people said, why are these young people saying this? Where are they living? And then when people found out that they actually live in the projects, they actually live in the slums, in the barrios, in the ghettos, but they did nothing about it. It's like turning that blind eye to human suffering. And there's a sense in which, you know, this is where, you know, I do think that some parts of gangster rap can be actually quite relevant. Why? Because gangster rap is often like a mirror for mainstream America. Who can deny that mainstream America is quite sexist? Who can deny that mainstream America is quite capitalist and quite bourgeois? Who can deny that mainstream America is quite heterosexist and predicated on heteronormativity and hypermasculinity? Who can deny that? So in some senses, these young folk are actually sort of uh, regurgitating. They are hurling back at America the way America really is. They're, they're telling it like it is. Now, the fact, again, that you have these high levels of misogyny and homophobia and materialism going on, it is, yes, it is morally repugnant. It is ethically reprehensible. 
But I don't hear the suburban people saying that about, you know, how violent cage fighting is, or a lot of these video games, or a lot of these horror movies that are pitched at white suburban youth. So, yes, gangster rap is violent, but so is a lot of white suburban youth popular culture as well. I, I think it's um, being marketed to the same people, isn't it? There I mean, you the, go. The, the, <laughs> now you're talking about, right? Because 87% of all of this rap music is consumed by young folk in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So who's really driving the hip-hop industry? And so this is where hip-hop begins to mirror minstrelism, which is why I love, I love Little Brother's uh, the Minstrel Show album, 2005. That was a great record. They wouldn't even play their videos on BET, right? Because they developed an internal critique of hip-hop culture, an internal critique of hip-hop culture that seems to replicate what De La Soul started, what Queen Latifah started, what the Jungle Brothers started, what Tribe Called Quest started, this kind of internal critique of hip-hop culture that actually has been part and parcel of rap music and hip-hop culture since the very beginning. And this book is actually dedicated. In fact, it's livicated, as the Rastafari say. It's livicated to all of those unsung heroine and heroes, the people that actually don't go pop, the people that actually don't go platinum and multi-platinum. Those people, they really, they are really, I mean, they, I mean, as Ice-T says in his brand new documentary, The Art of Rap, these are the folks that are really keeping the art form of rap alive. I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> I'm not mad at you for thinking. I'm trying to do some critical thinking. That's right. That's right. Um, um, do you think that there is enough of that uh, internal critique among the, the hip-hop community, or do you think there needs to be more? Um, or do you think that us, us white folk just don't hear it? Well, you, you know, I, I don't want to say that because, again, I, I think that if you look at my class, you know, the classes that I teach out here in Boulder, um, I would say a good 85% of all my students, are, you know, are, you know, white suburban students. So, I mean, they, they are aware of hip-hop studies, um, but let's be perfectly honest. I mean, it's not just hip-hop studies or books on hip-hop. People are not reading in general. People people are just not reading critical, you know, there, I mean, there's not a lot of critical material being read anymore. And so this whole critical mass that might have taken place during the Hall of Renaissance and Lost Generation years, or this critical mass that might have been there during the Civil Rights Movement years or the Women's Liberation Movement years, something has really shifted in the post-Civil Rights Movement period in rap and hip-hop culture. It's indicative of that. So, so yes, could there be a, a, a much more amplified and intensified uh, critique, internal critique going on, most certainly. But are there, I mean, if, if people are searching for resources, I mean, there are so many incredible, um, constructive, if you will, constructive critiques of hip-hop culture that are out there until it's unreal. We could go back to uh, Trisha Rose, Black Noise. Uh, we could talk about, I mean, there, there's so many of them. Check It While I Wreck It by Gwendolyn Poole. Uh, we could say uh, The Brothers Gonna Work It Out uh, by Cherise Chaney. I mean, I mean, there's so many really, really, I mean, even let's look at Jeff Chang's Can't Stop, Won't Stop. I mean, there are a lot, wait, my brother and friend, Bacardi Kitwana's The Hip Hop Generation. I mean, there's so many, there's so many, there, there, there's, there's so much out there if people actually want to go beyond. Now, you, 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 uh, you hinted at earlier that there is a tendency to collapse rap into hip-hop when most people actually get it quite twisted. Rap is one of the soundtracks of hip-hop mm-hmm. culture and the hip-hop movement, but rap and hip See, rap is music, but hip-hop is a larger movement. It is the first, I'm going to say it slow, it is the, now this is Remix 5, the hip-hop movement, Matt, is indicative of the first generation of American youth, particularly we talk about black ghetto youth, but this is the first generation of American youth to literally come of age in a desegregated and awkwardly integrated American society. This is what distinguishes the hip hop perhaps more than anything else. Now, I would also talk about how the uh, how the hip hoppers have also come of age during a digital and technological revolution. So, again, the fact that when I was a kid, um, we had eight tracks. 
<laughs> right? You yeah. might not even know what that is. I mean, no, no, I, oh, okay. I, I don't want to. I don't want to date us. You know, I don't want people <laughs> to turn it off now. But anyway, so anyway, when I was a kid, we had eight tracks. Then they moved from eight tracks to cassettes, from cassettes to CDs, from CDs to MP3s to MP3s. You, you skipped vinyl. Well, excuse me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you see, I'm getting old. I'm a dinosaur now, right? But anyway, I mean, this is really interesting. In fact, in our lifetime, then that we have gone from the Sony Walkman to Apple's iPod. Just think about all of that. We, we've gone from, from landlines and car phones to cellular phones. Look at how much has gone on right? in terms of not only technology, but also in terms of basically this is the first generation to actually come of age in a desegregated society. That is, that's what distinguishes the hip-hoppers. Everybody else, I mean, this is a completely unique phenomenon. So those of us born between, let's say, 1963 with the March on Washington, to uh, 1993, the beginning of Bill Clinton's presidency, that 30-year period, that is the hip-hop generation. My push at this point is to say that we need to be more than a generation. We actually need to be a movement. We need to form a movement. And when I say that, we don't need to get everybody in our generation to join. If we could just have a cadre of folk. I mean, uh, Matt, you're well aware that it was a quarter of a million people that actually uh, attended the March on Washington in 1963. So it wasn't everybody of the civil rights generation. It was a quarter of a million people. Well, let me let me hip you to the game, my brother. In our lifetime, we've had the Million Man March. That's one million plus. We've also had the Million Woman March. That's another one million. In fact, we had the Million Family March, which was another million. So the hip-hoppers, far from being apolitical, are actually quite political. And in fact, the hip-hop generation, the hip-hop movement helped to elect the first African-American president in the history of the United States of America. It's what, it's what I call in the book the Yes, We Can movement. So instead of No, We Can't, because remember, that's all they told us in the 70s and the 80s during the Reagan and the Bush years. We just kept hearing, No, You Can't. So we resonated when he said, Yes, Yes, We Can. That resonates with us. And it wasn't just African Americans. This is a multicultural movement now. So, it, yes, it might start in the, in, the, in the black ghettos, but at this point, now you're seeing the universality of so, African American ghetto culture. Do you think it's, it's a, a little more, uh, it's more of a challenge for this hip hop generation, born after, say, 1963, to, to in an age where at least overtly, legally, uh, we've, we've done away with segregation, slavery, right. etc. Right. So it's not as easy for them to, to pinpoint the structural uh, constraints yeah. that they're, they're working. So it might be more difficult to, to um, form a movement. Yeah, and I would say definitely that you have what Patricia Hill Collins calls um, the new racism, but we also have the new sexism. We have the new heterosexism. We have the new bourgeoisism, right? So we have—I mean, we have—we we literally have um, post-American apartheid. <laughs> we have post-American apartheid forms of imperialism going on, and they actually impact all of us—not just you know non-whites, but they actually impact all of us. And it's actually a look—it's a lot more difficult sometimes, I feel, to actually sort of tease out because people aren't wearing white sheets. Anymore, people aren't burning crosses in people's yard. They're not lynching people anymore. People aren't going out, you know, doing, you know, sort of these these kinds of wild things. But at the end of the day, I'm asking you: if we look at the statistical data, what has really changed for African Americans since the '60s? Yes, we had a lot of breakthroughs in the '60s, but in terms of real, you know, social progress since then. We, there has not been a lot going on. I mean, certainly the people projected the black middle class would be maybe three, four, five times as big as it is now. So, again, you know, I mean, there's been lots of setbacks since the civil rights movement, and this book helps to chart that. And it actually says a lot of, the, a lot of what the young folk think about it and how they are sort of living it and experiencing it, a lot of that's actually expressed in rap music and neo-soul. I, I, I heard a... Heard, read a quote once um, that in more socialist societies they celebrate um, how well the bottom end of, of society yes. is doing. In a capitalist society like our own, we celebrate how well the the best people are doing, the the, the, the top cream. So I'm getting at that. We, you're saying okay, the black middle class hasn't grown that much. There's still 
you know, a disproportionate number of African-Americans uh, in the lower working classes. But we 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 don't pay attention to them. We we celebrate the ones who, who make it. Yes. So Tiger Woods, uh, Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jackson. Snoop Dogg, uh, Dogg Jay-Z, Snoop Lion. Right, <laughs> Snoop Lion, that's, that's real. Uh, Jay-Z, uh, Nas, you know, folk like right. that who have big bank accounts, they are. And you know what, uh, Matt, to be perfectly honest with you, it, it's very much like I articulate in the book about the New Negro Movement, where Booker T. Washington set the tone for it by saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. But what about folks like me who come from the projects who didn't have any boots, let alone straps? How are you going to pull yourself up? See, that's the problematic if we only celebrate the so-called talented tent. What about the other 90%? What about the other 90% of the people? And even if you run and tell me that really, you know, the middle class and the upper class and middle class black folk are constitute 12 to 15%, but I'm still telling you, 85 to 75% of our people continue to be working class, working poor, and underclass. And here is the other fact that is pointed out in Hip Hop's Amnesia. It is this group of people that has consistently come up with all of these musics that everybody's dancing to right now, from Motown to Stax to Chess Records, right? If you list, really sort of look at what made those labels to Atlantic Records, all of these forms of music from ragtime to jazz to jump blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul, funk, disco, all the way through to rap and neo-soul, you're going to see a working class group of folk. Really, they are the people that, that invented it. They are the ones who popularized it. And, in fact, if, if people come up on me and start talking about uh, rock and roll, you know, if they have any questions in their head as to whether African Americans actually, you know, created uh, rock and roll. I mean, this is really interesting because, obviously, Elvis, all of Elvis's major influences, the majority of them, were African-American blues artists. And Elvis himself was, uh-oh, he was working class. So he said that he had a closer proximity to working class African-Americans. And in fact, we all know that Elvis regularly attended African-American churches. He said, because I love to hear them sing. Isn't that amazing? So even, even if we were to talk about working class whites, there is still a certain kind of symmetry that I think there's a certain kind of alliance that ought to be going on between the projects and the trailer parks. And I think this is why Eminem becomes so important. I think that's why Eminem is such a unique figure within the world of hip-hop culture. Why? Because he is unapologetic about his origins, where he comes from. And so, again, more folks, more, you know, if you will, average American hip-hopper might be able to relate to a white dude that came out of the trailer park as opposed to somebody that came straight out of the suburbs or whatever, you know, boom, boom, and it's the same old thing. But I mean, I, don't, I need not invoke Vanilla Ice. I need not invoke Vanilla <laughs> you Ice. You just did. <laughs> <laughs> tricky, man. It's tricky magic. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, they can relate more to Eminem than, say, the Beastie Boys. Well, you know, you know I, I, I really have to, I have to kind of give pause when I think about um, iconic figures like the Beastie Boys. I give them a certain pride of place. Why? Because the Beastie Boys were arguably the first popular um, white uh, hip-hop group, rap group. And the Beastie Boys, unlike a, lot of, a lot, unlike, unlike a lot of the white rappers that came after them, they actually acknowledged that they were particularly influenced by Ron DMC and the Fat Boys. If you go back and really look at them, they toured with Ron DMC. I mean, if you really, really sort of look at their close association with, you know, and they, they admitted they started out as a punk group in 1979, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, again, they, they were doing punk rock. And then they started doing this sort of post-punk thing, and then they became attracted, like lots of suburban white kids at that time, they became attracted to, uh, they became attracted to hip-hop and rap music. So they, you know, they flipped and went in this other direction and, I mean, it's just, it's a really, really fascinating thing that uh, took place with the Beastie Boys, but they, they seem to consistently acknowledge their, you know, the, the people that invented, if you will, rap music and hip-hop culture. And in that sense, they actually became um, pioneers in their own right. Because, again, by acknowledging, see, what I'm trying to do is if, if at least if we could acknowledge the root, then we can all enjoy the fruit. But if they don't acknowledge the root, which is in black America, deep, 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 in black America, then we're going to have some serious problems. This is the same conversation I, I'm, I have in my next book where I do a whole chapter on rock rap, 
where I start talking about the origins of rock and roll, and I go back to classic figures like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and uh, Ruth Brown and, and these kinds of people, Big Mama Thornton and so on and so forth, and started talking about the roots of what we now call rock. And if people don't sort of acknowledge that they, those grow out of the, 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 the ghetto, that sound, if you will, grows out of, Right, the 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 ghetto. Then we're gonna have a real problem in our conversations about rock. But you and I both know most histories of rock and roll whitewash it. Mm-hmm. And so, so then nobody understands why somebody like me could be arguably the biggest Rage Against the Machine fan on the face of the earth. Because they, they can't they can't see that a lot of us were already vibing with with, with folk like uh, Jimi Hendrix and I, I was already down with Prince and Lenny Kravitz and Funkadelic and Fishbone and Bad Brains and Twenty Four Seven Spies and I mean there's so many of them that were under Tracy Chapman for God's sake Living Color who were already doing that thing and so by the time Rage Against the Machine comes along it makes perfect sense to me man I mean I'm in, I'm in I'm in college at the time I'm like bumping it. <laughs> Uh, well, Rebecca, I think I, I think we're kind of out of time. <laughs> Again, oh man, so soon? <laughs> I, uh, I think you and I could go on for hours and hours. Yeah. And in fact, I'm pretty sure in a future episode we will go on for another hour when we when we get to uh, tell uh, when we get to uh, the hip hop movement, your third installment. Yes, so, the third installment uh, is going to be out April 2013. It is called the Hip Hop Movement. It is the uh-huh. culmination of the the trilogy brings it all together starts in 1945 and goes all the way through to the present day so it basically takes on the soundtracks of the civil rights movement and the black power movement and looks at how they uh how they you know um, impact and influence the soundtracks of the hip hop movement it's a fascinating l- l- little read if i if i can say so myself yeah. Fabulous. Well, um, uh, I look forward to reading that book. We look uh, forward to having you back on the show, and uh, thanks for being on the show this time. Okay, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing. We need you, man. Keep doing it, okay? Thank you. All right, take care. Peace. Peace. Right. Love. You've been listening to a conversation with Rayland Robica about his book, Hip Hop's Amnesia, from blues and the black women's club movement to rap and the hip hop movement, published by Lexington Books in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Lockman. Thank you for listening.